0: This is Perspectives, the show where an examination of our many differences often shows us how much we do indeed have in common. I'm Condes Presley, and I say that at the start of every one of our shows, but I've never meant it more than I mean it right now. Our guest in the studio has a powerful message for our audience. An audience, y'all might be mad at what Michael Eric Dyson has to say, but indeed I feel strongly enough that this is a message that Everyone who listens to this program needs to hear. He has a new book. It is called Tears We Cannot Stop, a sermon to white America. People who have read it completely compared to things that have been written by the greats. Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., James Baldwin. Professor Michael Eric Dyson is here in our studio. You are, let me make sure I, everybody get your credentials here. Mm-hmm. Mike's an ordained minister. He's been a minister for 35 years, and he occupies the distinguished position of university professor of sociology at Georgetown University. He's written out know how many books and is always welcome in the studio. Michael, this book makes me cry. God bless
1: you. It's well, been, uh, a lot has changed since the last time you and I, sat down and had a conversation that's true and it made me cry too. hence the the tears we cannot stop Um, I wrote this book in the immediate aftermath of the the op-ed that I had written on brother Sterling and brother Castile the two young black men who on Alton Sterling Baton Rouge next day
0: Philando Castile right outside Minneapolis that's
1: right and um, both of them cut down within a matter of hours and days, and um, I had had enough. I just felt that this is the end of the road for us here in terms of silence and complicity and, and the like. And so, at least for me, so I sat down, wrote an op-ed, sent it to the New York Times. They published it. It garnered like 2,500 responses, and they shut it down on the the New York Times website, so we knew we had something on our hands, and I sat down that l- last July, and for the next four months, it just poured out of me. Uh, 16 hours a day, letting it come forward, letting it claim my soul, and I couldn't write an essay, I couldn't write an analysis, I had to write a sermon. I had to go back to my roots. You know, as the old people said, I had my burning before I had my learning, and so... I wanted to send a sermon out to white brothers and sisters to say, this is something that's serious. This is something that concerns me. This is something that is so motivating in my spirit that I have to share this with you. And in sharing it with you, I have to, to, to communicate a serious concern on the part of African American people that our spirits are being depressed, that our stories are being suppressed, and that our lives are not being acknowledged. And so, and this was before the rise of President Trump, or at least the likelihood that he would become president. And I wanted to say to America, there is a kind of whiteness that is afoot in this country that is a menace to both white people themselves and to African Americans, Latinos and red and yellow people the like. And I and, and whiteness is an invention. It's not something people are born with. I'm not trying to assault. Italians, Irish, Polish, Lithuanians. I'm saying whiteness as a political identity, whiteness as the investment in the mythology of superiority versus inferiority of other people. So I wanted to get this out there so people could understand where I was coming from and also to understand that we've got to grapple with this. And especially in the aftermath of the rise of the Trump presidency, it's even more relevant today.
0: As you speak to your readers, Professor Dyson, you're right, beloved. Let me start by telling you an ugly secret. There is no such thing as white people. You go on to say that you're talking about a meaning of race that supersedes the features you inherit when you come out of the womb. You don't get whiteness from your genes. It is a social inheritance that is passed on to you as a member of a particular group. And you say then, and it's killing us. And quiet as it's kept, it's killing you too. What do you mean by that?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, <clears throat> first of all, like I said, you know, you're not born with an understanding of what whiteness means or being black or red or yellow or brown. You're brown. That that's not something we're born with. The societies into which we evolve, emerge tell us the meaning of race. Give us a sense of its invention, its necessity, its place in our culture and why it's important. So, that being the case, It's something that we project. You know, we have this scholarly term, the socially constructed race. All right, what does that mean? That means it ain't natural, it ain't normal. And this building is socially constructed, too, and if it falls on you, it'll kill you. So when we say socially constructed, we don't mean it's not real in the sense that it doesn't have force and, you know, power. It does. But um, what I'm suggesting here is that white people's investment in whiteness is a destructive one and that there's no such thing as white people because whiteness itself is an invention like any other color we have created a a political fiction to describe human beings to fit and suit our ideologies and our particular prescriptions about how we should treat human beings but it doesn't mean that it's rooted in biological reality or physical or anatomical difference having said that i think it is hurting this nation, why? Because the investment in whiteness means that the people are relinquishing their investment in their humanity. They fight for a possessive uh, relationship to whiteness. Uh, working class white people are told, "At least you're not black." Yes, you may not run the world. Uh, overlords and captains of industry who are white, who are wealthy, uh, exploit the passions, sometimes racist, of working class people to put to pit them against black working class people. When Martin Luther King Jr. was in jail in Birmingham, and his jailers came to him as warden saying, you know, what you're doing is wrong and the segregation is uh, right. And he asked them, how much money do you make? What's your resource base? And when they told him, he said, heck, you need to be out here marching with us. You are just as poorly off as the Negro. So even though white working class people have more in common with working class people of every hue, They have held on to a mythology of white superiority and the belief that they're better than Negroes, black people, African Americans, and other people of color as a compensating virtue for not having economic prowess. And I'm afraid that the billionaire, the blue-collar billionaire um, idol that Donald Trump became to many white working-class people is a mythological one. It's a mythic one because he will not ultimately do things that will represent his concern about or investment in that community, I believe. Um, and so, yeah, that whiteness is destroying us because it's a myth, a myth of superiority, a myth of difference, a myth that casts aspersions against black and brown and red and yellow people instead of forging connections and finding leaks. So
0: is this the sermon that in your book you are preaching to white America?
1: Absolutely. I'm saying white America, we know this is true. I treat white Americans like grown ups. I think one of the The negative consequences or unfortunate side effects of Obama in his brilliant uh, run as president was that he wasn't really uh, interested in telling white people the truth. Now, first of all, he wanted to get reelected. Secondly, he didn't really believe some of this stuff. He He was sold in his optimistic view on white people and what they represented. But most black people can't get down like that. We don't have that kind of naivete when it comes to whiteness. Uh, we're not optimistic to that degree because of our interactions with white brothers and sisters. We know them better. And my point is let them, let, let white folk grow up. Let them not be infantile. Let them be grown enough to hear the truth. Uh, when, when Donald Trump and other people speak about uh, political correctness and they say let's not be politically correct, okay, they can give it, but they can't take it. Because this book in one sense is a non-politically correct response to white America and saying, put on your big boy and big girl pants. Grow up, understand you've got privilege, understand regardless of your class you've got privilege, and understand that you have a responsibility to address the historic trauma that has been visited upon us as a result of whiteness metastasizing like a disease across the body politic. And when we do that, I'm not being nasty and vicious because I'm self-deprecating and humorous and I love white brothers and sisters, but the time is over for lying to them. What you have done collectively as a race has hurt this nation in many ways, and we've got to own up to that and figure out a way past it.
0: But, Professor Dyson, there are many types of people who listen to this program every week Mm -hmm. in the audience. And if they are still listening, what you say is something that many don't want to hear, don't believe, and Probably would not pick up this book how do you
1: implore them to do so well I'll say to them you know thanks for listening first of all all I ask is that you give me a hearing and when you give me a hearing and at least consider what I'm saying perhaps you can challenge some of your own beliefs maybe you can be a bit more introspective maybe you can acknowledge you know what he's probably telling the truth and we know it Um, white people get away with stuff that black people never could think about the crack epidemic Black people were criminalized. You're horrible going to hell in a handbasket because you're doing devastating uh, things that you haven't done even since slavery and denying your own families and willing to sell your babies and your own body for a hit, right? But when it comes to heroin and meth, we don't criminalize it, we what? Medicalize it. Oh, our kids are addicted, our young people are unfortunately victims of this scourge And so I'm saying, white brothers and sisters, y'all know that's true. So at least own up to that. Be more mature about that. Be morally enlightened about that. And then we can have some possibility of discussion. So all I ask those people who are listening to do is to open your minds and consider the things I'm saying.
0: So there are some people in our audience who are aware of the thought of what's called the cultural informant. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody's got their black friend or somebody who they can test things against. But I get the sense, especially from what I've read of Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America, this is probably not the conversation that that cultural informant can have with a white American. Is this a conversation that white Americans need to have with each other?
1: Yes, I think white Americans need to have this conversation with each other. Uh, I think they need to be open to and receptive of black and brown and red and yellow people telling them truths that they would rather not hear. I wish we could have an amnesty day where we forgave any racial, you know, hostility that we perceived being directed at us from people of color toward white people, right? Because we, are, we know that as people of color, we've often had to forgive white brothers and sisters for their beliefs, their hatefulness, and the like. Well, let's, let's flip the script and say, is there a day where white folk can listen to black folk or brown or red or yellow folk and it really hear them, really not talk? not insist on their interpretation, not suggest that they have something to recommend to black people to make them better, uh, be less pathological. Just listen, listen to the trauma, the hate, the hurt, the pain, the agony. And then I think we can move the needle a bit. So yeah, I think that white brothers and sisters have to be a bit more humble in receiving this message, but I think we need them to speak to each other in ways that you and I will never be able to reach their white brothers and sisters, right? We'll never be able to reach as effectively the white folk that they can reach, right? And so let's let's commission them, so to speak, to open up a line of conversation where they engage some very difficult truths with their very intimate family members.
0: But considering the outcome of the election last November, are there people who would argue Professor Dyson that hey, we won, right? That's not necessary.
1: Well, that's probably we, true.
0: We're driving the bus now.
1: Well, that's true. I mean, there are um, there are truths to that, um, but none of that lasts forever or always. And but it is true that you know they won the election. Now they lost the you know. There's no popular mandate when you lose by nearly three million people. You ain't no populist. You are you an electoral collegeist. That's what you are. And you won in critical states. I give you credit. My hats off to him. And I just doffed my hat. So um, but the reality is uh, the majority of white people never voted for Barack Obama. So they never intended to. And only when those numbers of people who voted for him in alliance with black and Latino people and other, you know, well-intending white brothers and sisters, they together put Obama in office. So this is no surprise that you know, a majority of Americans who never, who are white, who never supported Obama finally got their way. Um, and yes, they did win. But the question is, what did they win and how can we um, acknowledge that their win doesn't indicate that there's been a huge shift and a powerful or permanent uh, transformation in the understanding of what American democracy is? It means we're vitally contesting it. Um, and I think that people who, uh, you know, who, who, who have won, Certainly have a right to uh, enjoy that, which is why I was curious that Barack Obama, uh, in his farewell address, said, you know, you people, you people who are oppressed, you must uh, deal with that and address it. Racism is still real, he said, but, you know, open your minds and hearts to the white guy who, from the outside, looks like he has everything uh, but doesn't. Now, given what you just said, they just won. So why are you asking us to be sympathetic to them why not have the bravery to say white brothers and sisters who won or those who voted for Mr. Trump and won? Have some compassion for those who didn't vote for him uh, and yet who are Americans? Why? Because President Obama constantly drew false parallels and I think false, you know, um, equivalencies between experiences of white and black people. And he would never excoriate or criticize white brothers and sisters but would relentlessly criticize and excoriate black people. Um, And that scolding of black America um, was a significant representation of Obama's conservative ideas on these issues and his refusal to be self-critical when thinking about um, issues of race or policing or the broader society and its relationship to black people.
0: So answer me this question, Professor Dyson, when uh, people have said to other people, black people, white people in any conversation that their opposition to President Obama was not to him as the president, but to his policies. Mm -hmm. Uh, What is your answer back to that question? Because I think in some conversations, people hear that and think, oh, well, yes, it was an opposition to his policies and things that he did. And then perhaps you and I as African-Americans hear something entirely different.
1: Yeah, because we're wondering, what does your opposition to his policies have to do with dressing him up, dressing him up like a, a witch and a voodoo doctor? Right? If you're opposed to the policy, why go racial? Why go to a racist, racist stereotype? Why evoke such nasty and venomous language when discussing President Obama as opposed to, I disagree with his ideology and politics strongly and distringently, and I will oppose him tooth and nail But we don't have to demonize him and call him out of his name and say horrible things about him or his wife or his kids, all of which happened. So we know a lot of the animus may have been motivated by legitimate political differences, but they were also strongly motivated by a revulsion to blackness and a fear that this black president would extract Uh, from them a pound of flesh or exact a toll on them, white brothers and sisters, where, you know, he would do to them what they had done to us, and nothing of the sort was in the offing with President Obama. And yet the fear that he would do so led him to be attacked by people and some of the most vicious and racist things that were said, even by police departments in Ferguson, uh, Missouri, and the like cracking jokes uh, at the president's expense. And these are our public servants. That's what Obama faced. And those are the things we have to remember as we now have a sense of nostalgia for President Obama. But we also ought to have some critique for him as well.
0: So fair to say he was essentially in between a rock and a hard place, not only from his first election, but from his reelection.
1: No question. But here's the thing. We know he couldn't say much on race. So why go out of your way to dog black people? Why go out of your way to criticize black people when we know that's already being done in the larger society? That's not a new gesture or moment. Um, and yet, because we knew he couldn't say anything about white brothers and sisters or critical of them, fine. Then don't do, do, do that for everybody. Don't, don't criticize anybody then. If you can't criticize everybody, don't criticize anybody. And Obama definitely couldn't criticize everybody because there were white folk there. Um, in this nation who believed they were doing the right thing or who didn't want to hear from a black man what they should do differently. And thus Obama was hamstrung and limited in what he was able to say around the issue of race.
0: In the early days of the new administration, a flurry of executive actions, executive orders, essentially the new president uh, working to act on his promises to the men and women who voted him into the White House, knowing that what do you think the legacy for former President Obama will be? And if you looked into your crystal ball, what do you think is going to happen with this new administration?
1: Yeah, I think the legacy of Obama is going to be extraordinary. The man bailed out the automobile industry. He saved uh, the nation in terms of its economic infrastructure, and he gave us Obamacare. Uh, that's a remarkable— Which may go away. It may go Well, parts of it will be challenged for sure, and it may go away, but I don't think the underlying structure of it will, and it's easier said than done. The Republicans know what they're against, they just don't know what they're for. And so, Barack Obama definitely will be seen, I think, as one of the most cerebral presidents, along with Lincoln and Jefferson, uh, a reflective, intelligent, highly gifted young man, who also happened to be the chief executive officer of this United States of America, who was extremely empathetic toward women and to gay, lesbian, transgender, and bisexual and queer people, and who opened up a line of credit, so to speak, um, in the White House uh, for those who didn't usually get invited and those who weren't necessarily seen as the most vital uh, participants in uh, a drama of social change, like queer brothers and sisters. So he did an extraordinary thing. But when it comes to race, his legacy will be, eh, not so much. You know, he uh, was horrible on police stuff until recently, although he was conscious of the fact that as the, you know, head of the United States of America, he was also titularly head of um, the police forces in America. So he had to, you know, do a very careful balancing act. But at the end of the day, there was no balancing act needed uh, when it came to black people because he was willing to say some rough stuff against us and not willing to stand up and fight for us. And if you're going to beat us down, you've got to also pick us up.
0: And then so now what do you say to those who are arguing it's time to the election is over, the past is the past, and now the new administration is in and that that administration should be given a chance?
1: Well, of course, they're going to be given a chance, unlike their unwillingness to give Obama a chance, plotting the very first night of his inauguration, Mitch McConnell and others stand to be corrected, um, that he would be a one term president and that they wanted to sink him, and tried their level best, and yet that man kept rising. Uh, Yet Obama kept coming. And um, I think that of course we can give Trump a chance, he is the President of the United States of America, but we should not give him a pass. And we should hold him accountable, and check him at every point that we think is problematic, Uh, and open our mouths, our hearts, and our minds, and use every bit of resource we have to speak back to the authoritarian suppression of open truth and acknowledgement and even facts. We're living in a post-fact, post-truth world. We're living in a world where alternative facts exist. This is astonishing. This is Orwellian. So what we want to say is that uh, this presidency of Donald Trump Uh, is probably the first toddler presidency in the history of this nation. He acts at that level of maturity, impulsive, incapable of restraining himself or constraining himself, incapable of suppressing his speech in deference to a bigger project, a more noble aspiration of trying to bring, you know, peoples devastated by, um, you know, his win together.
0: How can readers take tears we cannot stop? A Sermon to White America, From Words into Action.
1: Well, there are several things they can do. You know, show up at rallies with black people, Black Lives Matter rallies, and and march in solidarity with us. You ain't got to lead the march or speak, but just be there. I was heartened, for instance, at the Jeff Sessions session in Congress when it was interrupted. It was mostly interrupted by white brothers and sisters who were speaking their mind, telling the truth about what they felt, you know, Donald Trump and this administration represent and so you know it's beautiful to be able to open ourselves to the truth and you know to participate in marches to tell the truth to tweet to Facebook and to express their outrage at what's going on and the fact that black people have been saying this for years and no one listened and now we will listen Um, I want them to participate I want them to educate themselves you know uh, it's nothing more discouraging to see people engaging in a conversation with no historical backdrop or no, no reference. Have you read Du Bois? Have you read Booker T. Washington? Have you read Frederick Douglass? Do you know the differences in ideology of those who promote a black nationalist perspective or those who were integrationists and, and the like? So, you know, there are all kinds of registers and ways of knowing each other and embracing each other and engaging each other. Uh, Across the boundaries of class That keep us from interacting
0: The book is Tears We Cannot Stop A Sermon to White America The author, Professor Michael Eric Dyson The right reverend, Baptist preacher For 35 years, Michael Eric Dyson Got the call when he was 18 It's always a pleasure to spend time with you sir
1: Always great to talk to you my love
0: Perspectives is a half hour We produce with you in mind If there's something you think We ought to be talking about Let me hear from you Tweet me, condo 29 on Twitter, or leave a message on our Facebook page. We do appreciate your listening and hope you'll be back next week at this same time as we examine another perspective.